Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Recent weeks have seen the unfolding of war in the Ukraine. Bombs, gunfire, and millions of refugees on the move are the recipe for suffering and unbridled healthcare demand. Sadly, this tragedy is not unique. Around the globe, armed conflict and natural disasters create tremendous need for medical care. For the past four decades, the International Medical Corps has provided aid and medical care at one disaster zone after the next. Today, we will hear from someone who has coordinated care in some of the most dangerous and wretched places in the world. We are going to learn what goes into executing the mission of the International Medical Corps and how we can support that mission. This is an important topic, so let's begin. Margaret Traub is head of global initiatives for the International Medical Corps. She has traveled extensively for International Medical Corps as field programs in countries such as Syria, Haiti, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. I am very pleased to welcome Margaret to Sound Practice. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being with us. Margaret, can you tell us a little bit about International Medical Corps' history and mission? Sure. So International Medical Corps began its first mission in 1984 in Afghanistan during the Soviet occupation. And what we found is that um, medical professionals, doctors and nurses particularly were being targeted inside the country. And while we sent originally um, our founder and, and today still the chairman of our board was there inside Afghanistan treating patients and training um, local doctors and nurses, uh, what he realized is you really can't bring enough volunteers into a country to help solve uh, medical and health crises um, due to war. And really the only way to have a long-term and sustainable impact was to train. Um, so he focused on uh, starting up training programs for medics. Um, and then those people could go to their communities and really treat 80, 90% of what they were seeing in a war zone. So that, that model essentially was expanded to Africa and Asia and the Middle East over the many years. And so we have over those years um, provided uh, medical relief and healthcare and training in 80 countries. Um, today we're in 30 of those countries uh, including Ukraine, uh, including Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, as you mentioned, Congo, Nigeria, places like that. And we really focus on going to the places that are hardest hit and reaching communities that are not being reached. So when there is a crisis, say in Ukraine, while we are in Poland, there are a lot of groups in Poland, so we want to try to also go to those areas that are not receiving services. What are the ways in which International Medical Corps uh, provides assistance? So we really view health as the comprehensive um, portrait of health. So that means um, the physical health and mental health of people. 
um, particularly in crisis areas, um, and and really in general, me mental health is often kind of neglected or ignored. And so we provide primary health care services, tertiary care, wound care in conflict zones, um, vaccinations. We have been doing um, large scale vaccination programs during COVID, um, as well as prevention and treatment programs for COVID-19 in 30 countries, including in the United States. Um, we provide maternal health care water sanitation hygiene, because obviously clean water is pivotal, pivotal to good health, um, nutrition services. Uh, and then also um, something we're seeing a lot in Ukraine is um, the beginnings of issues around gender violence and protection. Um, women and children are fleeing the country, often without men, because the, uh, the men have to stay behind and fight. And so they are alone. Uh, women and children are alone, do not have their resources and support systems, and they're on the move and on the run. And so um, they are extremely vulnerable. So we also provide services to help people who, who are extra vulnerable and need protection. Does your organization partner with uh, other organizations? So in any um, crisis that we respond there, um, unless we are the only group operating in the area, and usually it's in conjunction with the, the Ministry of Health uh, of the local government and the Red Cross, but in these large scale disasters like the Haiti earthquake, like Ukraine, there is an organizing what's called a cluster of, um, of uh, the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations that are responding. And we organize through the Red Cross, Red Crescent and UN agencies so that everyone is not stepping on each other's toes so that we're efficient, so that we're reaching people who need to be reached so that we're not leaving gaps. We're not duplicating our work and we're providing um, services that are needed, not services that are not needed. So um, that means that while we might be focused on health, another group might be focused on education and another group might be focused on shelter. And so we really coordinate and talk about what are those needs and how can we divvy up the work. Recently, we've all been focused upon the situation in the, in the Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, Please describe the, the public health situation in the Ukraine from International Medical Corps' perspective. Well, sadly, um, I, I, it, it, it's so catastrophic. Um, parts of Ukraine uh, in the south, particularly places like Mariupol, um, Mykolaiv, Pol, uh, Poltova, um, places like that are seeing catastrophic losses. Um, we have staff that um, have worked in Mariupol that we are still trying to determine where they are and if they're okay. Um, we, you know, um, hospitals, as you know, and uh, schools have been targeted. Um, and while we have numbers of casualties and deaths, we, um, are quite certain that the numbers are much, much higher. People in these areas have run out of water. 
They don't have electricity. They don't have food. They don't have shelter. Um, all of the basics are gone. And um, they are on the run or sheltering in place. And um, it's very hard to have communication with them. It's also hard to get any supplies in. So um, establishing a humanitarian corridor uh, through which we can safely send supplies or get people out has been nearly impossible. Um, the front lines have um, of the conflict have spread. And so they're they're all over the country now, um, moving, you know, south, north, and and now to the west. So um, these are areas where infrastructure has been devastated, including health infrastructure, um, where actual clinics and hospitals have been targeted. Is it ever too dangerous for your organization to be in a country? I mean, do you ever have uh, to make the call to, to pull people out because it's just not safe? Absolutely. Um, and there have been places in this conflict where we have had to uh, pull to a safer area and move our staffs. So this is a constant um, security assessment that we do. Um, Ukraine is not the only place that this has happened. Obviously, we work in Syria and Yemen and Afghanistan and other places that have seen years and years and years of conflict and where we have been working for many years um, since the beginning of these conflicts. Uh, so absolutely, and, and keeping our staff safe is our primary objective while they work to deliver care. Um, but it, it it's a constant struggle, absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned other locations that, that you're in. Do you, staff up in areas where the refugees are are headed i'm thinking of poland or uh, moldavia right so we are currently active in poland and romania and moldova and so those are some of the countries that are seeing the largest refugee flows um, moldova is a smaller country with less internal capacity so the large numbers are even harder on a country like that so we're working with the ministry of health there to determine um especially because there are fewer ngos there is you know is there more we can be doing there so we are surging our um staffs and um, scaling up in, in the entire region. Prior to um, these latest, um, this latest escalation of hostilities, we were working inside Ukraine since 2014 and have continued to work throughout this conflict. So we have had a very long-term presence there working inside Ukraine. And so this is a continuation, but at the same time, we're scaling up, sending in staff, um, from our existing networks around the world to come in and, and help and, and in a variety of expertise from, again, water sanitation hygiene to mental health to medical um, doctors and nurses, logisticians, um, you know, it, it really runs the gamut. So um, we are staffing up very quickly. Is it fair to say that the, that the type of uh, resources you need varies depending upon what's going on in the country, conflict versus a uh, large refugee population? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, if 
if if there's if it's an active conflict zone, you're going to see a lot of need of trauma and wound care. Um, but frequently, when people are on the run, they don't have their medicines with them. They don't have their diabetes medication, or you know, for for the regular things, they you know, over the long term, children are no longer getting their vaccines, and and you know. Babies are still being born. Thousands of babies have been born during this conflict. So um, that's that's a whole, you know, the, the needs of uh, women and, and children and pregnant women uh, go on. So, um, you know, when, when we were looking at, say, COVID, the needs might be respiratory needs or prevention and treatment of COVID. But, but in a war zone, the needs are, are different. Again, um, there's lack of clean water. So you have diarrheal diseases, um, you know, and, and those kinds of outbreaks. So uh, these, are, these are all, you know, it, it can really be a, a wide range of needs. But um, again, primary health care is, is, a, is a major one. If a physician wants to become involved, what would be the first two or three things he or she should do uh, to be evaluated if they are a good candidate for this type of work? Absolutely. Well, we um, are always looking for uh, great folks to um, work with our organization. We have large existing networks, both through the unions, as well as the academic institutions and the um, hospital networks uh, in the United States and the UK. But I would say going to our website and inputting, you know, uploading your information to our website and looking at some of the openings in an emergency, we're actively recruiting and those are posted on our website. Um, follow our social media. You can sign up for newsletters on our website at International Medical Corps with an S at the end.org. And, um, you know, our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, so those are good ways to kind of stay informed, share information with others. Um, for large hospital groups, um, you know, posting information so that your colleagues are aware. Obviously, we're always still, you know, soliciting donations so people can give on our website. Those are the best ways. Um, we have a lot of gifting kind um, pharmaceutical and medical companies that we partner with, all of the major names, and they provide donated supplies, which is fantastic. So we don't need so much kind of donations of masks and PPE and that kind of thing. Uh, we get those from some of the larger companies, but a great way people can help who want to volunteer is to go on our website. Does International Medical Corps accept assistance from residents or fellows, people in, in training? We, we have in the past, um, in certain instances, if people are doing a fellowship or residency, yes, we will. Um, during COVID, as you know, staffing was a huge issue for hospitals around the country. And so we too were looking at um, being able, we ended up not needing to um, because it came in waves. We were able to deploy people from one part of the country to the other part of the country. So when we were serving you know, New York and Chicago and Detroit, we were taking volunteers from California and Texas. And then when it switched, we were able to bring people from New York and the East Coast 
over to the West. So um, it worked out, but, but yes, in some instances, we do use residents and fellows. What about young physician uh, program? Do you, do you offer anything for young physicians? Um, I don't know if we have anything for young physicians because these are um, resource poor environments and conflict zones that are very complex. So we generally like people who, ha who have a little bit of experience either with kind of mass event trauma, you know, emergency department experience or have international experience. So because these environments are really, really difficult, we generally like people with a little bit more experience. Margaret, if in our audience today, there is a retired physician who wants to help, uh, what are the criteria? Do you have physical fitness requirements for individuals? We don't have physical. It's not like it's, you know, the Marine Corps where you have to keep weight and, you know, bench, be able to bench, whatever. Um, we, uh, it, it is a difficult environment. So I guess I would say, First and foremost, a, a sense of self, a sense of your own abilities and honesty with yourself about what you can do. Frequently, the work requires, you know, driving long distances on bad roads um, or, you know, where roads are out and bridges are out and you're hoofing it um, into a remote area. Um, we generally say you should be able to carry three days of supplies to, to sustain yourself on your own, on your back. Um, you know, if you're going into an area, say when I was in uh, the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan, you know, these are areas where there wasn't clean water, where bridges and roads were, were out and you had to get on your feet and go packing into a far community. So being able to sustain yourself um, and being nimble um, and not requiring a lot of infrastructure around you. Um, you know, for an anesthesiologist, you're, I mean, you're not going to have ultrasounds and you're not going to have a lot of the equipment. So being able to be nimble and light on your feet is important. What, if any, are the professional liability concerns for physicians assisting patients through International Medical Corps? Well, we are, you know, I, um, I, I don't want to um, get over my skis because I'm not a legal expert, but, but when you sign on to volunteer with International Medical Corps, you're part of a humanitarian organization and you are signing on to our code of conduct and our um, policies with regard to treatment of local populations and and um, we have approval from local governments, um, except in certain instances, and we don't aren't usually bringing in um, volunteers to those places. But, you know, we have approval from the local government to begin our work. And so um, those those are done under our auspices. If a listener wanted to support the work of International Medical Corps, um, doing so via state planning or legacy uh, planning, where should he or she, uh, she go to look for information about that? Absolutely. We do encourage that. Um, we have um, a development department who can work with them or their foundation or their advisor on setting up um, estate planning and uh, bequests and being able to give or give in honor of someone 
So we have all of that. And the person can certainly get in touch with me and I can direct them to the right, to the right individual. But we have a, a department, a resource development department that handles that. As we wrap up our, our time together, uh, I'm interested to know beyond individuals, how can health facilities or health systems assist International Medical Corps in its, its mission? Um, I think, you know, it's always good to have um, existing partnerships set up before an emergency happens. So um, making those connections, if there's a health facility um, over, over my many years, I work with health facilities to arrange partnerships at the outset or memoranda of understanding where we are going to work together. Um, we've done this in the past with health systems in the United States. The SEIU is one of them. Um, the Nurses Association, where we have these agreements in place. And then when we can go out to them and say, we need 10 nurses who have emergency room experience uh, or trauma care experience, and they need to be able to deploy in five days. They need to be able to speak French, you know, or whatever it is. And um, these networks are really great at saying, okay, here's who we have. And um, we train them in advance. And so all that is set up and, and it, it, it then becomes turnkey when an emergency happens. And, and do you ever have health systems or organizations that uh, provide matching funds for donations made by their employees we do. or staff? Absolutely. So if staff are giving, uh, we encourage the staff to to notify their employer or for the employer to be aware so that they can match. But we do that through many, many companies. We have about 100 corporate partners, including hospital associations that match their employees giving. This is a fabulous organization doing tremendous work. On a, a personal note, you're headed to the Ukraine region, are you not? Uh, pro probably this week, yes. Still working out the dates. <laughs> well. Thank you not only to the International Medical Corps for its tremendous humanitarian work, but thank you also to you oh. for uh, for all your your service and, and great work. Please I'm be safe. To do it, <laughs> be safe. Godspeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. My guest has been Margaret Traub. She is the head of global initiatives for the International Medical Corps. My thanks to Margaret Traub for her time and more importantly, for humanitarian efforts around the globe. The International Medical Corps is doing tremendous good under dangerous conditions. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Robin.
Kapow.